Welcome to Health Hackers. Thank you for being here. It is a pleasure to have you and it is also a pleasure to thank the sponsors of this episode. Glycanage, a science-based lab test you can take at home that estimates your biological age or what some may call your true age. Regular viewers, you might recognize the name Glycanage after my video review of my experience last summer. And by the way, you can still get 15% off your own home test kit using the code HEALTHHACKERS at the Glycanage checkout. Since making my review video, the company and I stayed in touch, and now I'm thrilled to be able to call Glycanage a current sponsor of Health Hackers. Head to glycanage.com to find out more about their test kits. And if you missed my review of Glycanage, the link to the video is in the summary text that goes with this episode. Thank you, Glycanage, for supporting Health Hackers. Now, over to the latest guest interview. This is Health Hackers episode 56. Full disclosure from the start, the topic we're covering today is of particular personal interest to me because I have a food allergy, mine is to nuts. It means I carry auto-adrenaline injectors with me and I love talking to people from the allergy world. So imagine my delight when I landed and interviewed with Dr. Tina Sinter from the Sean N. Parker Center for Allergy and Asthma Research at Stanford University here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Dr. Sinter is Clinical Assistant Professor of Allergy and Immunology in the Department of Medicine for the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the center, where pioneering research and trials are underway to develop new therapies for allergic disorders. Before we begin, a quick note to new viewers and listeners, anything you hear or see on Health Hackers episodes should not be considered personal or medical advice. You know the score, always talk to your health provider about your concerns. Dr. Sinta, welcome. Hi, thank you so much, Emma, for inviting me today. Well, it would be wonderful to begin by laying some foundations for the context of this discussion and find out from you just how widespread have food allergies now become? Yes, um, it has actually become a global problem. In the past several decades, the prevalence and incidence has just been rising exponentially. And every year, every couple of years when we reassess the prevalence, the numbers are greater. So the most recent report that we have and it's published um, is, it quotes it to be about 8% in pediatrics. And what we're seeing is that the rate is actually increasing in adults as well, where it's not just you know kids who have not outgrown their allergies, but adults who are developing de novo new allergies along the way. And the rate self-reported is as high as 10% in adults. And how do they vary in severity? Because I'm assuming not every one of those allergies is an anaphylactic allergy like mine, for example. It's all across the spectrum. For some, you know, reported allergies can be as mild as something called oral allergy syndrome, where they have a cross-reactivity with an environmental um, allergen. For instance, those who have allergies to birch when they eat apple or raw apple can have some itching around their mouth. And that we kind of, we term that as mild and we don't worry about anaphylaxis for those kind of symptoms. Whereas foods where, you know, they have a consistent repetitive reaction where every time they eat the food within two hours, they develop either hives, difficulty breathing or swelling. We worry to be as life-threatening. What's key is, you know, even though it, we use prior reactions as a, as a hint of what severity their reactions will be, it does vary because it does get affected by the, the dose, the threshold that they were exposed to. And as we get older in age, our immune response also changes. So something that may cause 
you know, anaphylaxis when you're two years of age, um, and repeated exposure later on may actually have much milder symptoms. So in, in a nutshell, there's no way to predict. It's all over the place, and which is why it's best to be just kind of cautious when we approach food allergies, because we don't know what we will get. And I'm sure you get asked all the time, why are allergies increasing? Do you have any leading theories? Yes, so this is something that is being explored all over the world, actually, because it is a global problem now and increasing um, in many, many countries and regions. Um, there are several kind of theories that are out there and it is multifactorial. It's not one single item. It's many things together that just kind of tip the scale for some people. Um, one of the things, well, we, we like to call it the six D's of food allergy. We think um, change, and it, it's, you know, a mnemonic makes it easier to remember. Um, but essentially, we think some of the changes over time, you know, um, things that make our lives easier have also kind of tipped us over to become more allergic, for instance, diet, right? So increase in processed foods and maybe lower diversity in foods can also increase food allergies. Um, dogs are supposed to be helpful. So less you know, exposure to farm animals or just animals out there can also be a risk factor. So having a dog is protective at, at a young age. Um, dirt, so the hygiene hypothesis, we just, you know, we're so clean now that we just have fewer exposures to allergens all around. And that kind of tips us over to become more atopic down the line. One of the things our team is exploring a lot is dry skin. Um, we think that may be kind of the initial part that kind of makes us more prone to be allergic. So when you're a baby and you have very severe dry skin or eczema, we think that the barrier is broken and allergens are entering and communicating with your immune response through the skin, as opposed to through, you know, through the gut, like you would expect with food. And we wonder if that aberrant response can kind of tip you over to become more food allergic. Um, detergent is another thing that um, there have been a lot of emerging research on. They found that, um, you know, the rate of food allergy started and eczema started skyrocketing around the time when um, like, you know, washing machines and detergents became widespread. Um, and part of the reasoning behind that is that to make our, you know, detergent so good, they add in a proteases, which break down enzymes. And if the, you know, to get that amazing smell, that means the detergent is still present and kind of, you know, interacting with our mucosa, interacting with our skin and just causing enzyme breakdown and making it easier for allergens to enter and communicate with our immune system in a way that we're not meant to. Um, and vitamin D. So we, you know, our lifestyles, we've become more sedentary. We're outside less. We're not exposed in the sun. We're seeing less dirt. So just our lifestyle has kind of tipped us over as well. Well, yeah. And on your point about dirt, given that we are now sanitizing more than ever during this pandemic, what impact could that have on our children's microbiomes? And do you have concerns about an effect on potential food allergy susceptibility as a result of us cleaning too much? Yes, no, that is an, that is an excellent question that you asked because it is something I have been thinking about a lot because I'm imagining, you know, you have all these, you know, bleach cleaners and Lysol that may not be wiped off the surface as well as we would like. And then you, I can imagine us sitting, like touching it, eating and 
kind of exposing ourselves to all those um, chemicals and you know that are involved in this. I just worry that with these increase in chemical exposures, how that will be affecting you know our barrier and our microbiome and all of that. But on the flip side, you know, one of the things that protect us as infants is a diversity of diet, and I wonder, and only time will tell as we kind of follow the, you know, this cohort of people long-term, you know, are they being home? Are they eating better? Are they exposed to their dog more? Are they spending more time outside because they cannot have play dates inside, you know, in those settings? So it might be, you know, there are different uh, factors in the pandemic that might actually protect us from allergens, but then different things that may be contributing towards it. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, on that note, I will tell you that, you know, a lot of our food allergic children also have asthma and uncontrolled asthma or an asthma flare actually makes your food allergic reactions worse. And we have seen a notable decrease in asthma exacerbations because kids are home, they're wearing masks, they're just not getting viral um, triggers that exacerbate their asthma. So it's, it's one of the things we're wondering, you know, these babies who are not getting exposed to infections early in life, how will that how, how will asthma kind of um, develop for them? So we shall see, yeah. And is the problem with a baby or child not uh, getting dirty enough and, and all those other factors that you mentioned, is it that their body and their microbiome uh, therefore doesn't learn how to respond to uh, invaders and therefore makes them more allergic to things? Yeah, so you know what's really, when it, comes to our immune response, what the way I understand it and explain it to families and um, colleagues is almost like, you know, like a balance, like a seesaw. So one end of the seesaw, let's say this side is um, our TH2 mediated system. That's our allergic system. And on this side is kind of our tolerant system. And it's always this kind of balance where your immune system is saying, okay, you have to attack this or no, let's ignore it. And there are some factors that make, and this could be genetic, this could be, you know, a certain fact, we don't completely understand everything that plays into it, but some folks are just more predisposed to becoming more atopic, right? Not all babies with eczema develop as uh, food allergy, but 80% of our food allergic kids have eczema. So there is a link there. And what we think happens is there, it's like a multiple hits, right? So maybe they're already predisposed and they've received you know, antibiotics early on. So their microbiome is skewed and they have eczema and all of those things kind of additively make them push their seesaw to be more TH2 mediated and their tolerant system doesn't work as well and they become allergic. and the way we kind of offset this predisposition is during this critical window where your immune system is still learning, exposure to those allergens at that time actually protects you. And that is what we've seen through the LEAP trial where you have early introduction of peanut, even if you're sensitized on skin prick testing and these kids end up not developing food allergy and able to tolerate peanut. But that critical window is what we're still learning. We don't know that is except that it's early and in, in you know in childhood yeah and just before i ask you more about those ways of potentially preventing an allergy in your child can a baby be born with an allergy or does it develop just through the means that you've outlined 
Yes, that is an excellent question. It is rare for us to see an infant newborn with an allergy. The earliest babies that I have been consulted on for inpatient is, you know, if they are getting some sort of nutrition through an IV in the ICU setting or neonatal ICU setting, but usually that develops after repeated exposures. And also it's rare. Um, it's usually kind of, we start noticing an uptick in all this, you know, later on, like six months to a year, kind of when they start introducing foods by mouth that we kind of pick them up. How commonly do you see a baby that has an allergic reaction to breast milk? And is that always because they must be allergic to something that the mother has eaten? That again, another excellent question. It is extremely rare, extremely rare. Um, as I mentioned, the only times I have actually seen an allergic reaction has been when a mother has been maybe transitioning from breast milk to formula milk, and then they have a reaction to the formula. But then at that point, once we diagnose it, we may then advise the mother to kind of, once it's diagnosed, we've identified it to eliminate that. But I have, I have been, you know, consulted where we've kind of trying to figure out what's going on. We may see severe eczema, but I have not personally seen anaphylaxis to breast milk. And there are several protective features within breast milk that may kind of protect against allergic reactions. Oh, really? Well, well, yeah, my next question is what can a parent do to help prevent their child from developing yeah. a food allergy? And is there anything you can do right from the pregnancy stage? Right. No, that's an, you ask such great questions. So the questions you ask actually are, we are actively studying. So we have two infant studies that are currently in development. And one of them is called Sunbeam. It's a birth cohort study where we're at, we're going to recruit pregnant women. We're going to start collecting sample like blood, stool, urine, you know, all the data that we can collect. And then once the baby's born, continuing with more collections of mother, of father, of child, and follow them for a year to, and then monitor how many of these children develop food allergy. And we'll also be collecting, you know, questionnaire data, um, di you know, dietary um, data, and just as much info as possible to try and find, you know, what features, what environmental things are protective and what could be considered risk, but to answer those questions. But in terms of what can parents do, um, I was once told by someone that we, we, if we start kind of adopting what our ancestors did, those are, you know, protective. For instance, having a diverse diet, eating more fermented foods, probiotics, prebiotics, you know, being outside more, just kind of channeling what our ancestors did can um, protect. It cannot, it may not prevent because there's so many factors working, you know, towards developing allergies, um, but it can't hurt. And if, protect, if it can protect us, then that's even better. And what about when it comes to introducing foods, new foods to your baby? Are there ways to help prevent an allergy developing? I think you mentioned that special period um, at the start of a baby's life. Yes, absolutely. So there have been numerous trials. One is the LEAP trial with the peanut introduction um, that was done in the UK. And the same team has done another trial called the EAT 
trial, EAT, where they actually not just looked at peanut, but multiple foods. And they did find that, you know, within that four to six month period, when a child shows kind of eating readiness, the more foods you introduce early, the better the long-term outcome. So not, I know at one point, um, pediatricians, myself included, were, you know, advising parents, delay introduction, wait till they're older. That has all gone out the window. Now we're saying, you know, whatever you are eating, try to give little bits to your baby right off the get-go, especially the top allergens. And if the parent has a food allergy, therefore making the introduction of that particular food to their baby very hard, what methods have you seen to overcome that? Yeah, yeah, so that um, that is a really good point. And this kind of shows you how, you know, even the food allergy is an individual diagnosis, it actually does affect the entire family and quality of life. And usually in those situations, what I, I mean, introduction to the child is very important because there is that genetic factor, right? If a parent has food allergy, the child has a higher risk of having food allergy themselves. And one way to prevent that would be early introduction. So what I have advised families is having another caregiver maybe be involved in introducing that particular food so that the parent who is allergic can still be safe. Um, and, and just kind of being mindful that this is for, you know, long term good where early introduction will be protective. So um, it, it's not going to be easy, it's going to be really hard. But I think involving the family and all the other, you know, other support systems in this situation would go a long way. Yeah. And, and maybe even could they go and see an allergist to introduce the food with them or is that not really what an allergist would do absolutely even though we've sound, found that children the younger you are the better your outcome is with oral immunotherapy or other sort of therapies that being said adults will still find it beneficial um so i there's no age limit whenever a person is motivated, I would say, talk to their allergist, get testing done, see how you can introduce it into your diet. And you may, it may not be a food that you want to eat routinely, but if you take a tiny daily dose, it can protect you against um, severe reactions long-term. And for children or adults with allergies, apart from avoidance, which is what I've had to live by, what options do they have in terms of treatment at the moment? Yes. So at the moment, um, you know, small, several different kind of treatment op options are emerging. Um, avoidance is still being recommended across the board. Um, that being said, last year, um, 2020, January, um, the first kind of FDA approved peanut oral immunotherapy um, product was in the market, Pafforzia. Um, It just kind of paves the way for other in, um, interventions to kind of be approved and adopted into the market. So um, oral immunotherapy is one where you take one food at a time and slowly build up tolerance by kind of incremental um, increases in the food. And um, the thing with OIT is that it's, it's almost, you know, it's very old school, right? It's like it, you just kind of, it's how, you know, you develop kind of, um, uh, you know, to poison or something, you kind of desensitize yourself. So it's the same concept. And um, the downside of oral immunotherapy is that even if you're protected, there is still an increased risk of allergic reactions because you are actively ingesting the food you are allergic to. So there's always this kind of element of, you know, you it is dangerous, you have to be careful, but it is efficacious and will provide 
benefit to the majority of people who use it. Um, other things that have come along is adjunct therapy. So biologics that kind of suppress your immune response as you're including oral immunotherapy to multiple foods. And this is great because, you know, 45% of our patients are allergic to multiple foods, not just one. So if they had to do oral immunotherapy for each food one at a time, it would take years. Um, so with these biologics on board, you can start OIT with five foods at the same time, build up, and then you take the biologic off. And by then you've already reached maintenance and you can continue daily dosing. A biologics drugs. Yes. Inge a lot of them that are currently being explored are injections. So omalizumab is one, dupilumab is one. Um, we have done studies with the drug um, anti-IL-33 or itacumab. Um, we have, we are currently doing clinical trial with a peanut vaccine where you kind of get a dose and it kind of in, in elicits an immune response without having to ingest the food. So multiple things in the works. Um, and then other things that are being explored also are sublingual immunotherapy. So instead of eating the food, you just do drops under your tongue. Um, another um, thing that we've actively been involved in is a patch where you have microgram amount of the protein within a patch, then you stick it on your kind of arm or your back, and it gives you kind of a tiny dose of the allergen. And we have seen some great response in some of the young um, kiddos that we've used it for. That's amazing. And with the patch or the injection, if somebody had, like you said, multiple allergies, mm -hmm. do you think mm -hmm. there's scope for one day that method being useful to them? Yes. So with the patch currently, it's still in the clinical trial phases and we've only explored milk and peanut and not at the same time. For multiple foods, we've done it for um, omalizumab, which is currently FDA approved for asthma and chronic hives and dupilumab, which is currently approved for eczema. So both of those drugs we've used with multiple food allergens. And do the, do the patch and the vaccine work on suppressing the body's immune system or are they more like uh, the immunotherapy where they're giving mm -hmm. a small dose so that your body mm -hmm. learns. So the patch is more like immunotherapy. It is kind of, you know, you have to change it daily and it's adding a little bit of the, you know, there are dendritic cells in our skin, immune cells that kind of take up the allergen through the patch and introduce it to your immune cells. Um, with the peanut vaccine, um, it's called Estellus. And the way it works is that it has encoded kind of the DNA of the peanut protein without peanut. So you're able to inject it and then the peanut protein kind of um, activates your immune cells. And because you're not ingesting it, it's not eliciting kind of an anaphylactic reaction, which or allergic reaction that we always worry about when we do oral immunotherapy or sublingual or even patch, even though the rates are much lower with the patch. Amazing. Well, I read that one of the aims of the Sean Parker Center where you work mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. to develop a lasting cure for allergies and asthma. Right. How close do you think you might be to that goal? Yes. So, you know, one of the, we are, st we still have a long way to go. We haven't found a lasting cure per se, but what we are now finding is that we're changing our not changing our focus. We're still, you know, looking for better diagnostic, better ways to provide, you know, immunotherapy by minimizing allergic reaction and adverse events. But we're also focusing our gaze on prevention. Like how, you know, instead of, you know, treating food allergy after it's developed, in addition to that, how can we, what can we do to prevent it from the get-go? Because it is such a 
worldwide issue by preventing it will you know food allergies as you know yourself it affects quality of life it affects you know so much and it's not just the person it's their whole family and we see little children that are growing up afraid of social situations who've never been on a plane who've never been on a carnival because they have severe food allergies and i think by preventing food allergies you're taking away trauma from a lot of these children and families which has long-term um, well-being effects yeah i can really see that i i remember so i didn't get an autoadrenaline injector until i was 14 and I remember being really intimidated by the idea of using it because I would think, well, maybe this reaction I'm having right now isn't bad enough to warrant using my EpiPen. When you're teaching your patients how to use autoadrenaline injectors, is there ever a time when you would say it's too early in this reaction to use your pen. Oh yes, that's excellent. So one of our um, 16 year olds actually came up with his own little um, you know, slogan because he was very worried about getting the epi and after he got it, he was like, I feel so much better. I don't know why you know, I hadn't used it before. So he kind of drew a little epi pen with a cape and you know, superhero costume and came up with have no fear, epi is here. And that's how I feel. And I tell you know, all our families is no you know, I treat food allergic reactions all the time. There are moments where I think, oh, I wish I'd given Epi earlier. There's never been a time where I'm like, oh, I gave Epi too soon. They're really, you know, I feel like if you're even thinking about Epi, just go ahead and give it because the, the you know, it's all cost and benefit, right? So the cost with using Epi, the benefits are high and the, you know, I know it's very expensive, so maybe cost is the wrong term here, but in terms of the side effects is much lower. So I usually tell people, oh, you know, when I review their reactions, I'm like, oh, you should have, you know, next time use Epi for that. Never have I been like, oh, you shouldn't have used Epi because the truth is, there are a lot of reactions that we cannot see, you know, the difficulty breathing or this impending sense of doom that, you know, as a clinician, I may not be able to see, but I really go by what the patient is telling me. And if that's how they're feeling, they're having trouble breathing and they kind of know a reaction's coming, they should give epi. And then do you advise your patients to go straight to hospital? Yes. And the reason I do that, and I, I clarify with them that I tell them to go to the hospital, not because I think epi is dangerous. Epi is great and it will help their allergic reaction. The reason I tell them to go to the hospital is a lot of times one epi is not enough to suppress the reaction. And I don't want them to be in a space where they think they're all better. 15 minutes later, their symptoms are back and they don't have additional epi to take care of their symptoms. Um, in our food you know, allergy studies, you know, I sometimes need to give two epis and it's not uncommon. And we give it because you know they're under observation. If they need it, epi is really the best drug to stop an allergic reaction in its tracks. And um, I just worry that if they're not in a medical setting, if they need escalation of care, just, they won't have access to it. Yeah. That being said, if they're traveling, I because I do have some uh, families in the past who have mentioned, oh, I did not give epi because I did not want to go to the ER. And, uh, you know, I say you're going to the ER, not because you gave the epi, you're going to the ER because we're worried your allergic reaction will escalate. Even if you decide you're not going to go to the ER, don't let that stop you from using the epi. Good to know. Thank you. Um, well, just going back to your research at the Sean Parker Center, you've been there for four years now. I wonder if there are any other significant findings that have stood out to you since you've been there. 
Yes. Um, thank you so much for asking that. I, you know, as I mentioned, we are getting more and more focused with prevention research. And it's really fascinating to find, you know, data from detergent use and microbiome and, you know, how diverse diet, high fiber diet can all be protective. Um, but what I really have been focusing on, focusing on is the skin barrier. And, um, you know, it's easy to say, oh, dry skin, you're at higher risk for food allergy. But what we're trying to find out right now is how, you know, how do we intervene? Do we, what kind of moisturizer, how often, like what kind of recommendations do we give to help with the dry skin that will actually prevent or minimize the risk of food allergy down the line? So that is something we are currently working on. That's another infant study that's in the works. It's called SEAL. And we're collaborating with um, three other sites in the US and including the a site in the UK who did the original LEAP trial. So we have them on board as well. And we are going to take infants with eczema and severe dry skin and treat them aggressively in one group. And the other group is going to be standard of care, which is what we recommend, you know, in our pediatrician offices um, or, you know, outpatient allergy offices and watch them for three years and see whether aggressively treating dry skin and eczema early on will reduce the risk of um, food allergy down the road. So that, you know, I feel like that can help a lot of folks and give us a lot more insight into the process of food allergies. So, that is our kind of next big thing. <laughs> and when you say aggressively treat, how does yes. aggressively treat differ from standard of care? Yes. Aggressively treat meaning being aggressive with steroids. So you know how in pediatrics, we often say minimize steroids, minimize steroids, because we worry about long-term side effects. But when it comes to eczema, there may be a case for aggressively treating with steroids to reduce that inflammation that will actually help with um, long-term food allergy in term. And then in terms of what standard of care, standard of care is, you know, routine moisturization, but not, and you only use steroids for flares, but not kind of in a sustained manner, which is what will differ in our treatment group versus our standard of care. Got it. How exciting. So that will be out in what, three or four years time, do you think? No, we're actually trying to get everything done so that um, we can start the study enrolling in a few months and then we should have some interim data in a year out and then um, the whole study will be about three years. Oh, fascinating. And then what do you think the future of allergies looks like? And I mean in terms of whether you think more and more people will continue developing allergies uh, but also what new treatments could exist. You talked us through the patch and the injection and potentially some work with uh, the skin barrier. Is there anything else you think could be dominant in the future of allergies? Yeah, so what we are really working towards is some more precision medicine. So food allergy is different, right? Some have one food allergy, some have many. Some, you know, spontaneously outgrow their food allergy. Some develop it as an adult. Some have coexistent asthma and eczema, some don't. So there are different, you know, it's not just food. Every person's different and they all respond to therapy differently. You know, we have all these different options. We have different biologics and oral immunotherapy and patch therapy and sublingual immunotherapy, but not everyone responds to the therapy the same way. So there must be something underlying in their immune response. And so what we are hoping to do is with, you know, within clinical trials, we collect a lot of blood and, you know, it seems cruel and brutal at the time, but really it's through this blood that we can look at 
T cell responses, mast cell activation, activation, basophil activation, and try to understand what, you know, what are the patterns? And if we can kind of get someone's immune profile even before they start therapy, can we predict, you know, this form of therapy is ideal for you, or this is what your long-term prognosis looks like. So that to me would be great where a person can come in and we can check their blood and say, this is the ideal therapy for you. So that is what um, I think with all these different options, hopefully it will be available soon. That would be so exciting. And finally, my one last question for anyone who is new to allergies, perhaps a parent who's got a new diagnosis for their baby, what one thing, if there, if there was one thing that you would want them to know about the road ahead, what would it be? Yes, oh my gosh, one thing, I have so many things. Um, so I would say find a support system. This is really daunting. And it is one of those things that unless you are personally affected, it's hard for other people to understand. They just don't understand the fear and the anxiety that goes along with it. Um, so finding that support system, even if it's outside your family. And I think just having connection with people who've been through it, who know what the options are is huge. And the second is definitely find a medical team that you feel comfortable with, who can, you know, answers all your questions, kind of is up to date on the most current evidence-based medicine because the guidelines are changing so quickly, so furiously that you really need a team that is going to stay abreast of that data and give you the most up-to-date guidelines, even though it might change in a few months, but just know, just having that connection, I think will support, you know, you down that road. Wonderful. Um, I know you said you had lots. I don't, I don't want to deprive any parents out there of, of your wisdom. If you do have a couple more to add, please do. Oh no, it's, you know, it's the six D's. I feel like um, things that we can do early on, like just diversify the diet, being, you know, um, the dirt hygiene hypothesis, just being outside, being in the sun, those are all things that will um, be protective. And, and through this all, I feel like quality of life is affected so much for the whole family. And it's funny because when the baby is little, they might, they don't know they have a food allergy. They're just living life. It's the family that's affected. So I think having kind of a team that aggressively diagnoses you and has a plan and, you know, doing food challenges early kind of supports the newer paradigm versus avoidance is key. Dr. Cinder, thank you so much. There's such a lot of information there and it's so valuable. I really appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you so much for the excellent questions. And, and I love talking about this. So. Me too. <laughs> Health Hackers viewers and listeners, thank you for staying with us. If you're watching on YouTube, hit subscribe for regular videos. And if you're watching or listening to this through Facebook, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, you can opt to follow the show there too. See you next time. Bye-bye.